The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, where I was joined by consultant cardiologist Dr. Angus Nightingale to discuss a station which I know one colleague of mine had come up in both her first and second sittings of her exams, and that is hypertension. Angus and I talked through the red flag symptoms, how to conduct a focused examination, and the differential diagnosis and investigations for the vast number of causes of a hypertensive patient. We then discussed the acute management when these patients need admitting to hospital, as well as when they are seen as stable patients in outpatients. Quiz the Consultant continues as Angus answers questions on Sicilian detective novels featuring Inspector Montalbano. As usual, if you like the show, then please do consider leaving us a five-star review on whichever podcasting app you use. Get in touch on Twitter at Prepaces Podcast. But without further ado, let's get the show started. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, the only podcast that acts as the beta blocker to your pre-exam nerves. In today's episode, we're discussing another topic, which is a station five favorite, and that is a patient presenting with hypertension. Joining us today is Dr. Angus Nightingale. Angus is a consultant cardiologist at the Bristol Heart Institute, as well as a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Bristol. He subspecializes in heart failure and more pertinent to this episode, he also leads the specialist hypertension service. Not only that, but he also plays a leading role in translational cardiovascular research in both of these specialist areas. So I think it's fair to say we couldn't have anyone better to discuss this important paces topic of hypertension. So Angus, thank you so much for joining us today. No, you're very welcome. I'm really looking forward to this and uh, thanks for having me on. And a little bit later on, at the end of the podcast, we've got the return of our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their choosing with the caveat that it can't be to do with medicine. So, Angus, what have you named as your specialist subject and why? So I really like Inspector Moltanbano detective stories. Uh, Maybe that's because uh, I I want something a bit different uh, to kind of get over the whole COVID uh, lark. They're really good, well-written detective stories. They're from Italy, so you just get to see or think about beautiful scenery. And he loves food, does, uh, does uh, Moltanbano. And so I just laugh every time. You kind of sit there thinking this concept of going and having a full three-course meal at lunchtime, a bottle of wine, it quite appeals to me. I, I, I quite fancy that as a, a way of faith. <laughs> if we can convert that to the kind of UK medicine somehow, that would be just brilliant. And this was something which was completely new to me and um, doing the research for the quiz was um, really interesting. It's a very wide, varied uh, set of books. So we'll come on to that a little bit later in the show. But for now, let's dive into hypertension. So I think it's fair to say that hypertension is most likely to come up in either a station two, which is the long form history taking station or a station five. Now in the station two, you're going to have to be very comprehensive in your approach, covering all the red flags, as well as performing a complete and thorough history, including past medical history, family history, drug history, and social history. Whilst in the station five, it's going to have to be more focused, ticking all the appropriate boxes, as well as having a focused examination. We're going to be covering all of those aspects for you in this episode. But 
the first question I've got for you, Angus, is why do you think hypertension is such a common case to include in PACEs? I think it's uh, it's something that's just so common. I think uh, it, it, we recognise that it's a really big risk factor for cardiovascular, cerebrovascular disease. Lots of people in the population have it, maybe up to 40%. Uh, it affects young people and it comes with the whole multi-system aspects, which is really what appeals in PACEs. So you kind of, kind of link up kidneys, heart, endocrinology, brain. And I think it's that, that combination of things. And as a you know, medical SPR on call, you may see people coming with hypertensive emergencies, you're always going to see people who've got high blood pressure knowing how to manage that. Uh, and it's something uh, really important that GPs are going to ask you about a lot. So it fits really well into, into that kind of PACES program uh, of being relevant to kind of medical registrar type of kind of work that you're going to see all the time. So I think it's only right for us to start off with some definitions so we're all singing from the same hymn sheet and cover some of the terms which listeners might encounter during their revision. So Angus, if you could just clarify for us a few different definitions. So those are primary hypertension, secondary hypertension, resistant hypertension, and malignant hypertension. What's the difference between all of these terms? Okay, so let's start off with primary hypertension or essential hypertension. You don't really have a specific cause for it. So primary means, you know, you, you don't ever find there's a hormone or a kind of structural cause for it. And essential just means it's, it's because it's there so often. So that's the majority. 90% is primary or essential. Secondary hypertension is that specific group of, uh, of hypertension where you actually find a cause uh, because that's going to have a very different type of treatment. So there's an underlying cause that's driving it. And usually that's an endocrine, a renal or some kind of anatomical, some kind of vascular kind of cause, which we'll come and discuss in a bit. Resistant hypertension is when the drugs aren't getting the blood pressure down to the target that you need to reach. Um, and in various that varies a little bit. People tend to say that you're, you're only got proper resistant hypertension if you're actually on three drugs, including a diuretic and are taking them and still don't have, you know, don't have, and still haven't got your, your, your kind of blood pressure to target. And then malignant hypertension is in the kind of category of hypertensive emergencies. Uh, and they're kind of, the European talk about urgencies and emergencies, depending on how much end organ damage uh, there is sort of going on in that kind of situation. And I think maybe it's worth when we're talking about definitions, just also to add in a couple of other ones, really, which is white coat and then kind of um, uh, and concealed hypertension. So, so white coat hypertension is where the, the blood pressure is high when you particularly have it done uh, usually in a doctor's surgery. And concealed hypertension is something that people may not have come across so much. And that's where you have uh, high blood pressure. But when you come and have your blood pressure measured in a medical kind of setting, the blood pressure is actually normal. And I think the doctors are probably the classic group of people for who might get that concealed hypertension because their blood pressure is sky high when they're on call. But actually, when they've taken a half day off to go and see the GP about their blood pressure, it might be normal. So, yeah, really interesting, because I think lots of people would have heard of white coat syndrome, but probably less people, I would imagine, have heard of that concealed, which is almost the, the opposite of, of white coat. And concealed is probably maybe I should say it's also called masked hypertension, quite a lot of the things. So there's different sort of bays. So, so either, either way, the blood pressure isn't high until you actually do an ambulatory blood pressure monitor. Um, home blood pressure monitoring sometimes helps it, but actually you need to do it often in people's workplaces. And then I guess another definition which we should really pin down is what actually counts as high blood pressure for these patients. Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a number of different ways of looking at that. The NICE guidelines say that uh, a clinic blood pressure of more than 140 over 90 would be enough to kind of call somebody hypertensive. But then they do recommend that you go and confirm that with home or ambulatory blood pressure reading. And if you're taking readings out of the clinic, the numbers go down by five. So then the diagnosis will be made above 135 or over uh, 85. But there's a lot of debate in the literature about actually what is normal blood pressure and whether there's a, a U-shaped curve or a kind of, you know, a lower blood pressure. But from the point of view, the definition, we're thinking of 140 over 90 as a clinic reading and 135 over 85 uh, and a sort of home or ambulatory readings would be the type of level we're thinking that's hypertension. I thought I'd just um, outline the likely scenarios or the lead-ins to the stations, which the candidates are probably most likely going to see. Although um, essential hypertension is the most common, it's probably unlikely in paces you're going to get something as straightforward as a patient presenting with essential hypertension. So the most likely lead in um, a young patient who's significantly hypertensive where uh, essential hypertension might be, might be less likely as a diagnosis. And then um, the other side of that is something which 
Angus has just spoken about, which is resistant hypertension. So, for example, the lead-in might be a letter from a GP who's attempted the routine treatment of a hypertensive patient, and the patient has remained hypertensive despite that, and you're being asked to see them um, as a secondary opinion or sec- uh, opinion in a secondary centre. So moving on to the station itself, after having got a lead-in of most likely one of those two scenarios, you'll be expected to take either a focused history as per a station five or a longer, more comprehensive history in a station two. So um, Angus, what are the essential points when you take a history of presenting complaints from a patient who has presented to you with hypertension? So I think the first thing you're trying to work out is, is this really, is this really hypertension? That's the kind of the, uh, the, the most important thing because so you need to kind of review what the data is that supports that either from the GP or from the patient's kind of uh, home blood pressure monitoring or if they've got any ambulatory data uh, and also how was it done, you know, was it done on a kind of a monitor that's okay. So establishing whether it's really uh, genuine hypertension, finding out if they're known to have hypertension, you know, what sort of treatment uh, they've been on, how long they've taken it, uh, have there been any changes um, and then very much always, always think about pregnancy as well at this sort of time as well, particularly if you've got a young, uh, young woman, because that can be sort of, uh, have, they, have they been pregnant in the past and had high blood pressure during that? Have they got any thoughts about being pregnant? And then after you've got the story about that from the patient and you are pretty convinced that they've got a confirmed diagnosis of hypertension, what, what are the more important sort of red flag symptoms that we need to ask about near the top of the history of presenting complaints? So when we're seeing one of these people and we're thinking about hypertension, I think there's two things we're trying to keep in our minds at the same time. Number one is, are there any features in the history that make me think there's a secondary cause? And then is there anything in the history that makes me think there's end organ damage? And they both got slightly different. So the secondary cause will make me think actually the treatment is different. The end organ damage might mean the intensity of the treatment is different or the speed I need to get it under control. So if we think about end organ damage and then the, the European um, hypertension uh, society say, or the ESC, think about target organ damage here. So you're thinking about, you know, kidneys, uh, the brain, uh, the heart as being your sort of three kind of main organs uh, that you're really looking out for. So that's to see if there's any sort of uh, target organ damage. And then we're thinking about, you know, whether they're getting headaches, chest pain, blurred vision, uh, nosebleeds, that kind of stuff. Have they noticed any sort of frothy urine? So that would be in the kind of end organ, end organ damage. Could they've had any sort of you know, TIA type symptoms. Most patients won't have any of these, although I'd say increasingly we're seeing people with, with headaches quite frequently. And, you know, sometimes we do see people who come in with a nosebleed and then their blood pressure is done. And, you know, a medical registrar will pretty often get called by the eye hospital where they've had someone who's got blurred vision, they've turned up to the, to the ophthalmology uh, A&E and they've got blood pressures over 200 and then you're going to get this panicky phone call. So, you know, that, that's a, a not an infrequent kind of uh, sort of question. So, so when you've thought about the kind of the end organ damage, you're then trying to think a little bit about at the same time, you know, why might they have high blood pressure and then try and think about from the history, you know, is, have they got any history of, of any sort of kidney problems and work out what are the things going to be happening in that, in that particular age group. We know that in younger people, they're more likely to get kind of renal artery hyperplasia rather than renal artery stenosis. But have they got any history of peripheral vascular disease that might push you down that line? Did they have any kind of surgery when they were young, which might make you think they had, could have had a coarctation or something like that? Um, so those are the sort of those are the kind of the renal and the kind of vascular types of causes that we're trying to think about. And then we're thinking about endocrine causes. And probably the most common endocrine cause that we'll come across is uh, is con syndrome. So um, hyperaldosteronism. So that's uh, the most sort of frequent type of thing. But that doesn't really come with much in the way of uh, symptoms specific to it. Um, obviously, you're going to keep a lookout for the, the potassium when you come to the, the blood test, which is one of the clues in that, uh, in that sort of setting. Check the, whether they've been suddenly getting, having, uh, you know, eating lots of uh, licorice, which has an aldosterone-like effect, and they haven't suddenly gone, gone mad on that. Pheochromocytoma, we're a bit more familiar with. We know we're used to those kind of episodic hot flushes, palpitations, chest pains, you know, that really kind of like massive anxiety attack that people are getting. Um, and so we're seeing some of those as well. So remember to think about that. And Cushing's, you know, these are people who've got cortisol excess. And, and often we're seeing, we're seeing more and more people actually you've got Cushing's, which is secondary to their long-term severe chronic asthma treatment, for instance. So, so as well as, you know, if they're young and they haven't got a history of being on steroids, you know, thinking about whether they might have any other signs, the stria uh, that you're going to come, we'll come on to in a minute when we come to the examination or other features of, uh, that might go with that. 
acromegaly is an unusual thing but it's the kind of stuff that they like in paces and uh, the endocrinologist can wheel out the odd uh, interesting person who's going to have fantastic uh, signs and symptoms but but talking about changes in appearance changes in their their glove or you know sizes of their of their feet um, visual problems you know diabetes in a young age we've always got to think about thyroid problems because that's a pretty common type of thing very rarely I guess we have to kind of think about the sort of the flushing and the diarrhea as well. So just, you know, if you're kind of thinking about whether people are going to have carcinoid. So, you know, you're, th you're thinking about endocrine causes and then really important is the sort of the drug. So we've already mentioned about, uh, about how people might be taking excess uh, steroids and that's typically for asthma, but some people might be taking illicit ones. Lots of people have got, you know, chronic arthritis or kind of pain problems and taking non-steroidals. The oral contraceptive pill is a, a very common thing. That's one of the reasons why young women tend to present with actually high blood pressure because the GP uh, monitors that. And uh, so that's actually looked at and measured. Um, alcohol excess can also put, push blood pressure up. And then we're seeing many more people taking kind of more illicit drugs, so combinations of ecstasy, cocaine, things like that can all push blood pressure up and you can get surges in blood pressure. And then we also have to think about other kind of causes. So some of the respiratory causes and anything that gives you uh, some type of disordered sleep uh, uh, and, and kind of um, breathing patterns. So sleep apnea uh, in its various kind of uh, versions is, is really important. And so you need to make sure you're asking people about daytime drowsiness and, uh, and go through the whole kind of scoring system from that point of view as well. And then really thinking about, you know, what medication are they taking? How long have they been on it for? And are, are they actually taking their tablets? Because we're increasingly aware that people who uh, are on a number of medications, particularly once you get more than four, actually the number of people that are really taking their, their drugs, that's, that's quite a lot lower um, than you'd expect. And we've now got ways of measuring the, uh, the urine metabolites for these various drugs. So in our hypertension clinic, we get people to do a urine sample when they come in and we dip the urine for um, protein so you can send it off for an albumin ratio but you can also send the urine off and you can look for all the metabolites of the drug, uh, the blood pressure drugs that they're taking. And it's really surprising how few of them are taking it. And the more people, uh, more drugs that people are taking, the less likely they are actually to be compliant or concordant. And that's really important. And, you know, we're trying to work with pharmacists and things to try and people like that to try and uh, improve that side of things as well. In summary, really, there is such a wide variety of symptoms that these patients can potentially present with. So if this is a station five, you really just have to have all the possible differential diagnoses almost in your head before you head into the station. So you know what you're going to be asked or you know what you're going to ask to the patient before you even enter. And Angus has run through a lot of those just to finish off the main part of the history or the accessory part. So we've spoken about the types of questions you should ask about the drugs, not only what, what they're taking at the moment, but also illicit drugs and alcohol. In terms of family history, um, in terms of just assessing their cardiovascular risk, asking about a background of cardiovascular disease, possibly at a premature age, um, as an example, um, possibly that they've got a background of high cholesterol or familial hypercholesterolemia. One of the things um, which can cause hypertension would be chronic kidney disease of, of any cause. And sometimes I've seen these cases where the, the patient is meant to have a background of polycystic kidneys, where they've either had a family history of um, renal replacement therapy, or they've had family members die from intracranial aneurysms, which have been, um, which are both associated with polycystic kidneys. So just a, a couple of things which are sort of curveballs, but potentially associated with hypertension. Can I just add a couple of other things as well there, Sam? So, so in the family history, we, we, that's, that's really crucial, as you're saying, and there are some monogenic versions of, of hypertension that can be important. But, you know, we've got to, we, we, we haven't mentioned it, but we need to say, you know, smoking history um, and any inflammatory condition seems to be um, increase your risk of, uh, of hypertension. So that's things like rheumatoid arthritis, but also psoriasis, uh, any of these sort of chronic inflammatory conditions are really important. It's worth asking people if you're, uh, if you are able to, you know, what their gestational age is, when, how, how, you know, were they born at term or not? Uh, and if there's any, if they, if they're female who's had children, did they get pregnancy? Did they get high blood pressure during any of their pregnancies uh, are really important things to, uh, to add as well. Definitely. And some of the things we've spoken about so far, which would ordinarily maybe go into the social history, such as smoking and alcohol, just really important to make sure you're not sort of, or you're making sure you're ticking those boxes even though they're usually part of a, a social history.
So you've taken a pretty comprehensive history asking about all the different types of symptoms which we've um, spoken about relating to the different possible secondary causes of hypertension. And in a station five, you'll have to perform a very focused examination. And my advice would be to um, mirror your examination in the same way as we've spoken about structuring your history. So the first thing I would think would be to confirm the diagnosis. So even though you're in a station um, five, I think it's definitely worth saying that you would just recheck the blood pressure in clinic. They may not actually expect you to do it only because that would take um, quite a bit of time. But um, it's just important to state that you would recheck it there, there in clinic just to make sure you're, you're being comprehensive in your assessment. And as um, Angus said at the, at the top of the show, making sure you're not just going on um, the previous readings of blood pressure that, that have been given to you. But the other side of the coin, which we spoke about earlier, was assessing for end organ damage and um, secondary causes, Angus. So in an examination, this can be quite difficult. So how can we either assess for end organ damage or possibly find some signs associated with secondary causes? But I know these are quite uncommon, but how can the candidates or listeners demonstrate their appreciation for these types of conditions in their examination? So I think we've, the first thing is to think about looking in the eyes because, you know, the eyes are a, a kind of insight into the, what's happening into the brain. And so you may have people, and we've got, we've got a number of patients who we know have some hypertensive uh, retinopathy. And so you might see uh, changes in the, in the eyes there. So, you know, I don't think you're going to get someone with papilledema, but you may see more subtle kind of cheap features of AV nipping, um, some, some flame hemorrhages, some exudates, things like that um, to be looking at. And that's, again, that, you know, you want to dilate the eyes of the pupils in order to do that. Um, think about radio razor delay, radio femoral delay um, and murmurs, you know, so people who are going to have kind of uh, renal brewies, things like that um, might be important as well. Feel the peripheral pulses. So you might get up. They might ask you to feel all the all the pulses and they may have very different pulses in, you know, in different uh, in different limbs. And occasionally you'll get the patient who's got, as you said, polycystic ovaries, who's going to have a renal mass that you can feel. And people with kind of the, you know, the kind of the, the other endocrine causes, the sort of FIOs, cons, things like that, they're not really going to have much in the way of kind of physical features to, to sort of find. Cushing's, some of the Cushing's might have, as I said, some stree and might have a kind of, you know, that humpback appearance, that sort of extra, extra adiposity at the back of the neck. And you need to say that you'd be listening for renal breweries, although they're pretty uncommon, really. So those are probably the most important things that you're going to be doing. And then offer you know whether you whether, if there's a urine sample that you can test there and then as well yeah and the other thing would just be so if they if they clearly have a stereotypical appearance of a patient with Cushing's or possibly acromegaly as well um th those would just be sort of barn door things don't forget to mention things even if they're right in front of your face and the other thing just to I think you just misspoke a little bit there Angus you said polycystic ovaries and obviously you mean I did say polycystic <laughs> ovaries and I meant polycystic kidneys you're quite right yes what, what yeah. did so just to summarize your examination, remember, this is going to have to be really, really focused. So and things you can get through really quickly are um, so fundoscopy. Like we said, you're probably not going to see people with overt retinal changes, but even just gesturing to the fundoscope, the examiner may well just wave you down, so to speak, and say, yep, OK, thank you very much. We know you, you were going to look in the eyes, but there's no need to go through the motions of it. So palpating pulses, you might find a radio, radio, radial or radiofemoral delay in the case of a coaptation. Assess for atherosclerotic burden with femoral and carotid bruise, so auscultation, and then an ab uh, abdominal examination if you have time for that, palpating for masses. But by and large, keep it as focused as possible and, and critically keep it focused to the suspected diagnosis based on your history. So you finish the examination you're going to move on to present the patient back to the examiner with your findings, followed by some questions. So Angus and I are going to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we're back, we'll be covering the common questions which you may be asked by the examiners and how to structure your presentation to them. So the next part of the station is the two, either the two minutes at the end of your station five or the slightly longer five minutes at the end of your history taking station where you'll be expected to present back to the examiners the case in front of you. So 
in terms of structuring your presentation, ideally you've got an idea in your head about what the potential diagnosis is. But if you don't, clearly you just have the lead in. So either a resistant hypertension or a, a patient with significant hypertension who's been referred to. So when you come to your presentation, the questions you really want to be asking is, is this an undertreated primary hypertension due to issues related to compliance or possible white coat syndrome? And in terms of your presentation, the main things you're going to want to mention are ensuring that you are checking the blood pressure with a correct technique, using the correct cuff size in a quiet area after five minutes of sitting. It's important, as we mentioned earlier, to exclude white coat syndrome with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and also asking in quite a lot of detail about compliance. If after asking all of these questions, you think the patient has satisfactory compliance, then it probably is a true diagnosis of hypertension. And then we need to think about secondary causes and target organ damage and confirming that with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring if that hasn't been done already. But then moving on to the investigations and management, the key questions the examiners are likely to ask you will be about your investigations and management, either seeing these patients in clinic or when they um, when they present on the acute take. So if we start first with um, end organ damage or, or target organ damage, um, Angus, what investigations would you routinely request um, to assess specifically for target organ damage? So the first thing that we would do is we would think about the kidneys. So we think, I'm thinking about kidneys, heart, brain as my sort of you know, target organ damage kind of threesome. So the kidneys, we want to know, uh, is there any proteinuria? So we dip the, dip the urine for microalbuminuria, and then we'd send up and quantify that. So we'd send it off from albumin creatinine ratio or protein creatinine ratio. We need to think, could they be pregnant if they're female? Um, so we need to do a pregnancy test if appropriate. And then we need to know what the renal function is like, what's the creatinine and particularly what's the potassium. And then we need to know whether the kidneys are normal. So, uh, and you can do that in a number of ways. So you can do uh, a renal ultrasound would be the most straightforward way and measure the size of the kidneys. It doesn't give you very good um, idea about renal arteries. So if you're worried about renal artery stenosis, you need to do uh, a CT scan, uh, probably is the best, best way to do that. So then when we thought about the kidneys in terms of target organ damage, then we're thinking about the heart. And here we're thinking, is there any evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy um, or could they've had previous infarcts or anything like that? So an ECG is the way to go here. So you, um, you could well got shown an ECG or, you know, it's important to look for an ECG to see if there's any evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. But the specificity and sensitivity of LVH on an ECG is still not great. So you do need to then go on and quantify that. Uh, and particularly, um, so, so I think, you know, it's important to go and get an echocardiogram to measure left ventricular mass. And left ventricular mass is slightly different from left ventricular hypertrophy. So end organ, because the, the, the heart can remodel in a number of ways. So, uh, so, but you, so you want to think about left ventricular mass, evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. And then if they've got much further down the line, they might have any evidence of heart failure. So you might be, you know, looking for evidence on a chest X-ray, pulmonary edema, impaired left ventricular function. And then we're trying to think about their overall cardiovascular risk. So generally, we're trying to think about cholesterol uh, and their non-HDL cholesterol, thyroid function, uh, HbA1c. Those are probably the most important uh, things that we're trying to, uh, to do uh, when we're trying to assess that. And we're using uh, Q-risk as our sort of means. And that Q-risk is particularly um, useful in slightly older patients over the age of 40. In younger people, it's less well validated. And there are different uh, European and uh, American kind of risk factors as well uh, that we tend to use. And then you can put all of those features in. And sometimes they ask for the standard deviation on ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, if that's available, if you've done, if you've done that. And then they're asking questions also about the family history and, and other comorbidities, as we covered earlier in the, in the history side of things. And just one question I wanted to just go back to really quickly, which maybe we didn't cover during the, the history itself. You mentioned about renal artery stenosis being a possible um, differential diagnosis for, this, for these patients. Now, one of the sort of stereotypical scenarios or one of the sort of um, written question um, scenarios which comes up is these patients are found to be hypertensive, then they're started on an ACE or an ARB, and then they... Um, suddenly become extremely breathless and get flash pulmonary edema. Is that something which you, you've seen yourself in, in your clinical practice? Um, very rarely. I mean, I've seen a lot of people with renal artery stenosis. You, you more often you see a worsening of their renal function 
rather than actually the Flash Pum Redeemer. So I've only seen Flash Pum Redeemer a couple of times, but I've seen you know quite a few people who've got worsening renal function due to fairly critical renal artery stenosis. The tricky bit is that we don't, there's not much data saying that actually treating the renal artery stenosis improves outcome. But, but if I think in the cases where the renal function goes off, it, it can be beneficial. So I think that's why we do, we do try and look for it in that group of people. Yeah, and I'm guessing that wouldn't be um, sort of the within the realms of what you might expect to be relatively normal after starting an ACE. I'm, I'm presuming it's sort of a jump of a couple of hundred. Um, yeah, it would be a sort of like a sort of 100% increase in, in creatinine would be the sort of thing you're talking about. You normally expect that you're going to see a maybe a 15% increase in creatinine when you start someone on, on an ACE inhibitor um, or an ARB. So it's, that would be a fairly normal kind of thing, whereas we're, we're talking about, you know, doublings rather than rather than those small increases. Perfect. So those are the sorts of investigations which we'd which we'd attempt to try and detect end organ damage or target organ damage. But then, as we discussed earlier, there's a, a very broad variety of differential diagnoses, which all potentially have their own um, diagnostic investigations. So we're going to sort of take each of those in turn as, as much as we can um, to try and at least give you um, the most specific and diagnostic investigation for these differential diagnoses. But there are quite a few of them. So um, so Angus, if we if we just run through the the different diagnoses we discussed earlier, and, and what would be the most sort of specific investigation for those? Okay, so when we, when we're seeing somebody with you know who you're thinking about, could this person have a secondary cause for hypertension? Statistically, the most common thing is going to be hyperaldosteronism, so primary hyperaldosteronism, so excess aldosterone. So we'd want to try and measure an aldosterone-renin ratio. And the important thing there is that lots of the drugs that we give alter the renin-aldosterone number. So you need to actually have people not on any drugs that interfere with the renin-aldosterone system. So typically you have to stop their ACE inhibitor, their beta blocker, their calcium channel blocker, and pretty much doxazazine is about all we end up giving these people. So it's best if you can do that. And that's a blood test that needs to be done while they're, they're sort of, you know, recumbent and, uh, and not, ex- uh, not kind of, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, been standing up very recently. So, so that's the, the most common thing. And renin aldosterone ratio uh, is something really, really helpful. Then the, the next sort of group of people we think about are the people with excessive catecholamines and how we pick that up. And traditionally, you can either do uh, a 24 hour urine collection or you can do a blood, so plasma catecholamine or metanephrines, as we tend to do now. And you have to be a bit careful because a number of uh, um, things like paracetamol can be, give you a false positive on the, uh, on the urine catecholamine. So you would do a 24-hour urine collection for, for catecholamines. Thyroid function, we've talked about, and we would just do um, a blood test for that. Acromegaly, you've got to really think about it here. So you, you're going to do some specific tests like your glucose tolerance test to look for, for diabetes and uh, uh, and serum uh, IGF-1, that kind of thing. Excess cortisol is a tricky, tricky one here. So, so you can, if you do suspect this sort of thing, then you uh, are going to want to do a low-dose dexamethasone suppression test. Sometimes people do uh, 24-hour urine cortisols as a sort of screening test, but it's not terribly good at that sort of thing. People that you suspect sleep apnea, uh, you need to do some kind of uh, overnight sleep uh, study. So uh, sleep study with polysonography and then overnight oximetry to look for that dipping. Um, we talked a little bit about renal artery stenosis. Uh, and so the problem is that renal ultrasounds don't do that. So a CT scan might be helpful for that. And CTs are, are actually much the best way of looking for adrenal masses as well. So if you're suspicious that someone's got a pheochromocytoma or more commonly primary hyperaldosteronism, then I think a CT scan can be very helpful. Um, although it's relatively... So if you, do, if you do see evidence of excessive aldosterone, you then want to go on and do very specific things like uh, renal vein sampling to see which side, uh, or which side of your, which of your renal, uh, adrenals is producing excessive um, aldosterone because you can get tumours, um, you, know, you can get these masses, but also you can just get diffuse um, hyperplasia of the, uh, uh, of the adrenal glands. So different, different kind of features there. So a CT scan uh, in addition to the ultrasound. Uh, and the ultrasound of the um, of the kidneys may show multiple kidneys, uh, um, sorry, multiple cysts in the kidney. If you've got someone with got polycystic kidney disease, occasionally you can use MR uh, or MRI, um, and that's what we do in our clinic. But that's because we've got a research interest, particularly in that. MRI is particularly good at looking for coarctation, but CT scan is also pretty good for that as well. 
And I think things that are coming in more are also looking in the brain for evidence of small strokes or what we call uh, white matter hyperintensity lesions. As these look as if there's something that might be very relevant in the progression to dementia later down the line. And we're seeing more of these in middle-aged people, which is a bit scary, but something, you know, it gives you another thing to talk to patients about and helps them to actually make uh, the necessary lifestyle changes, which are very important. Um, you know, when they actually think, well, I, might, I can avoid dementia maybe if I do something here. Perfect. So that's a really comprehensive rundown of, of pretty much all the investigations that you should, uh, you should mention to your examiners. But obviously this is going to be tailored to the exact history which you've been given. But hopefully you've got a good idea of the, the range of specific investigations which, which are used to try and diagnose these patients. And then the next part of it will likely be the examiner asking, how do we manage these patients in hospital? And I think this is something which is reasonably common amongst medical regions, which I've seen in the past, which is a patient comes in with, you know, very high blood pressure, over 200 systolic. And it's a question about admitting these patients or discharging them. So Angus, how do you approach that decision about whether or not to um, admit this patient or, or discharge them with, with sort of urgent follow up? Yeah, so I think there's two ways of thinking of it here. I think the European guidelines are really good on this. So if you want to go and do some later reading, the, the European guidelines on hypertension, they talk about hypertensive urgency, where there is sustained severe hypertension, but no evidence of end organ damage. And then hypertensive emergency, where you've got sustained severe hypertension, typically more than 180 systolic and more than 110 diastolic. And there is evidence of end organ damage. And the kind of end organ damage we're thinking about most typically is so cardiovascular, we're thinking about pomeridema, so heart failure or ischemia, so uh, chest pain or aortic dissection uh, or myocardial infarction. So those are the cardiovascular kind of end organ damage in that context of uh, that kind of hypertensive emergency. And then we think about CNS um, kind of uh, uh, end organ damage in that urgent situation. And this is like uh, someone with cerebral infarction, um, cerebral or subarachnoid hemorrhage, and then stroke and seizures, hypertensive encephalopathy, so maybe with headache, vomiting, and reduced levels of consciousness, and hypertensive retinopathy. So that's the CNS uh, side of things. And then renal, if they've got acute kidney injury, significant proteinuria or hematuria, and then hematological. So you can get these things with microangiopathic uh, hemolytic anemia and uh, DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. So, so those are the things that we that we kind of you know want to consider when we're seeing a patient who's come in um, to hospital with a hypertensive emergency. So if you see a patient who's had a stroke and who has severe hypertension, obviously you're gonna liaise with the, with the stroke team. Um, and if they've had an intracerebral infarct, you may consider treatment if the blood pressure is persistently more than 220 over 110, uh, or if they've got uh, hypertensive encephalopathy, dissection, heart failure, MI, you might want to kind of lower the blood pressure down towards the 160, 180 mark. And we'll talk in a minute about what the targets might be otherwise. If they've got uh, intracerebral hemorrhage and the systolic pressure is more than 150, you might then want to think about using parenteral, so intravenous drugs, um, unless it's a very large uh, hematoma and they're pretty looking like they're going to die, um, or you found a structural cause for it, or there's some plan for emergency surgery. Um, so, I mean, the approach generally is if, if the patient's kind of well and has only very mild end organ damage or no end organ damage, then that would be in the urgent treatment. So you're just going to look at urgent treatment. So you're going to start some treatment and repeat the blood pressure after two hours. And then you only need to admit them if they've got sustained severe hypertension or if they're unwell. And you're aiming to reduce the diastolic blood pressure to around 110 millimeters of mercury. But over the first 24 hours, don't reduce the mean arterial pressure by more than 25%. So you can afford to be a bit more gentle about it. If they're already hypertensive, you think about compliance with their regular medications, you may need to increase their dose, um, or you may need to add something new. If they've not had um, blood pressure treatment before, then the recommendation is thinking about amlodipine, five milligrams typically, which could be up to 10, or libetalol, uh, so 100 milligrams orally once a day initially, um, particularly if they've got ischemic heart disease or a tachycardia, um, and then adding in an ACE inhibitor uh, on top of the, the libetalol and the amlodipine uh, after around 12 to 24 hours, but they need fa fairly careful monitoring of their renal function. 
And then if it's still uncontrolled after that, maybe adding in a loop diuretic would be the sort of thing. And that's what the that's the way the European guidelines think about that. So those are the patients who have got high blood pressure, but they don't have any evidence of end organ damage. And these are people typically more than 180 uh, systolic. But if they've got kind of severe or life-threatening um, end organ damage, these are people that are going to need emergency treatment and they need to be managed in an intensive care or high uh, dependency kind of area. And in the first couple of hours, first two to six hours, you're aiming to reduce the diastolic blood pressure to around 115 millimeters of mercury. Again, not dropping the mean systolic pressure too fast and maintaining it at around about 120, sorry, maintaining the diastolic at around about 110 for a minimum of 24 hours before you make further reductions. So that's what the European guidelines talk about. And here you're using um, labetalol typically um, because that's an intravenous beta blocker or uh, intravenous nitrate, so GTN, which is particularly good if someone's got heart failure, or you may need to use sodium nitroprusside uh, or phentolamine if you're suspecting a pheochromocytoma. So that would be the sort of the approach that we would take to that emergency patient. But remembering that you want to bring the diastolic blood pressure down uh, to control that end organ damage, but you don't want to bring it down too fast uh, and you need to stabilize it. And that's why you need to use the intravenous because you can get it down to a level and then you can adjust the dose so that you're keeping it at that kind of stable level. Just, just another point on that. I think a lot of focus is placed on the systolic blood pressure when these patients come in because it's often sort of over 100 and everyone's, you know, a little bit anxious, a bit twitchy about these patients having such a high blood pressure whilst they're in hospital. So should we really be paying more attention to the diastolic blood pressure rather than trying to reduce the, the systolic blood pressure urgently? Yeah, so I think that there's a there's a so the so there's different guidelines that talk about it and things. So the mean arterial pressure is probably the most useful. Um, and so you're aiming for a reduction of around, you know, 20 to 25%, but you don't want to get your diastolic down below more than about 110, maybe 105. And the systolic, you can worry about a little bit less. So I do think we need to pay quite a lot of attention to the diastolic and the mean. I think where it's a little bit different is if they've got something like an acute aortic dissection, where you're probably going to want to lower your systolic blood pressure down to less than 120 quite quickly. Um, Pulmonary edema is easier to treat because you can use nitrates and then we're probably aiming for 140 and the same with an acute coronary syndrome, 140 is the sort of level. But I think the diastolic is probably more useful and the mean arterial probably more useful in many ways. And something which um, you mentioned just at the start of that of that part is the high acuity environment where these patients should be cared for. So ideally an environment where we're able to possibly have an arterial line in so to allow for um, very precise titration of um, intravenous agents. So I think that's very, it's very critical that people are managed in a high dependency area, because I think these people who've got a hypertensive emergency with evidence of end organ damage, you can actually do more damage by lowering the blood pressure too fast. And you've got to be able to have them in a situation where you're monitoring the blood pressure very frequently, so you can adjust your doses. And then on the other side of the coin, so we've spoken a lot about sort of hypertensive emergencies if we then move towards the cohort of patients that are reasonably asymptomatic but still have significant hypertension which we think needs um, sort of relatively urgent treatment and and going on to address some of the things which we've discussed already one of the things we talked about was um, considering non-compliance with medications which I guess you must see sort of reasonably often. So how, how can we try and improve compliance in these patients where, you know, you ask them and they say, oh, well, actually, you know, I haven't taken my Ramipril or my Candesartan for the last couple of months. What, what can we do to try and encourage these patients to take their medicines more, more compliant with more compliance? I think compliance is a really tricky, multifaceted thing, and it needs support from all different angles. So Education of helping them understand is important, but actually, you know, it's like the nudge. You've got to find ways to make it easier for them to do the right thing. So that might mean a dosset box or getting their family members. Um, the local pharmacists are really, really good at being engaged with this kind of stuff. So you, if, you, if you can alert them that to there being an issue, they can often find ways and talk to patients. I mean, in hypertension, we, we're moving towards trying to take, get people to take their medication at night a bit more but that's harder for people to remember so you know making uh, reminders in your in your calendar having some sort of tick box way that you actually uh, show that you've done it um, but I think that it's actually much harder than we think 
And the people that have high blood pressure are often people who have some of the most you know, disordered lives and it's very hard for them. And so we need to have a lot of sympathy and recognition that it's not just that they're lazy or forgetful. You know, it's difficult. And, you know, I'm sure that all of, all of you listening, whenever you've had to take a number of medications at a time, you know, I, I came off my bike once and got a nasty infection in my leg and I was trying to take antibiotics, painkillers, and I, I lost track of what was going on. It was just difficult. And then, you know, you combine that with feeling a bit rubbish and being a bit frailer and things, it's, it's really, t- really difficult. So, you know, trying to use as little, use as few tablets as possible, but dosset boxes are really helpful. Engage the local pharmacy, help people to kind of recognise the importance of it are the, the kind of key things, really. And as well as maintaining compliance with their medications as well, lifestyle modification is really important in these patients that some some of whom probably don't have um, the most healthy of lifestyles. So what advice should we give these patients once they're stable or maybe if they are stable, what advice should we give them to try and reduce their um, blood pressure in future? So I think the first thing to say is to talk to people about salt and how to reduce their salt consumption and recognising the sources of salt in your diet and being reminded that actually bread has loads of salt in it. So if you get your sandwiches down at the the local kind of uh, subway, you know, every lunchtime, you know, you're going to be taking in a lot of salt from that. So encouraging people to cook from scratch, not to add salt. Um, I find that most people, the biggest struggle is lunch, you know, and they're often getting takeaways and things like that, or, you know, quick meals, and they have very high, look at the wrapping, uh, which tells you a lot about that, uh, about the salt intake. Um, Losing weight, is you know what people need to do but again everybody knows it's really 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 difficult and particularly once you've got past a certain stage it becomes a vicious cycle Um, and thinking about whether um, any type of surgery might be appropriate for patients because you know that kind of dramatic weight loss uh, is, is often difficult to do without those sorts of things obviously we want people to take regular exercise and aerobic exercise is is good um optimize and reduce as much as possible alcohol intake and smoking is really helpful but it is just all that healthy healthy lifestyle and I think everybody not everybody most people know what they ought to do the big trouble in life is actually how to do the stuff that you know you should do and that's the that's the problem in medicine you know actually we know the right guidelines I mean cardiology is the most amazing specialty which I love because we've got so much evidence and yet we know the right things to do and we're trying to actually deliver it. It's not always that easy. And I think the same is for patients trying to, you know, improve lifestyle is, is tough, but we've got to find ways to do that. So do whatever you can to really encourage people. And my other top tip is just ask your family members who are a bit overweight, what have they done to try, you know, learn a bit about Weight Watchers and different, slightly more off the walls that if you're a, you know, a young you know, 20 or 30 year old, you know, you won't have set yourself probably being to Weight Watchers, but talk to people in your family about what it's like and what, what they can, what they've found helps. Yeah. And I certainly remember a family member of mine once asking me, I think I'd only, I must've been in my first or second year of medical school, but it's almost like they, they expected there to be sort of a magic thing that you only get told when you're in medical school. It's like, well, Sam, how, how actually do you lose weight? How do you actually become healthy? And it's like, well, actually it's everything that is out in the public domain all the time. There's no, there's no magic pill. There's no secret that we know in medical school that, that anyone else knows. It's just getting them to do the basics and do them well. Absolutely. And then moving on to, so we're still sticking with this cohort of patients and we're just going to talk about the sort of usual um, lines of medical therapy. Um, And we're going to use the NICE guidelines. Um, So these are um, relevant in the UK, so not for our um, overseas listeners. This is purely for the UK NICE guidelines. There are different guidelines on the ESC and other um, other associations websites, but uh, or in their guidelines. So what's the usual implementation regime for patients who present to their GP or maybe present to you in clinic? And um, what are the most common medications that we tend to use in this, in this cohort of patients? The first line treatment for people with high blood pressure is usually an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. That would be the standard thing, particularly for people who are younger, so under 55. Um, if you're older than 55 um, or for people who are from an Afro-Caribbean uh, heritage, then it may be more appropriate for them to take a calcium channel blocker. So that's a group of people. So if you're under 55, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, if you're over 55 or from an Afro-Caribbean heritage, then calcium channel blocker would be your typical first line treatment. 
And then the next thing is, what do I do if that hasn't got the patient to target? And we do need to kind of work hard to get them up to target. Then we would then add in whichever one they hadn't tried first. If they had an ACE inhibitor or an ARB first, then you'd add in next a calcium channel blocker. Um, or you could add in uh, a thiazide-like diuretic. So indapamide would be the example that we have most commonly here. So you've got those sort of choices. So typically you'd start off with an ACE inhibitor and then you'd add in a calcium channel blocker or a diuretic. And then third line treatment would be adding in whichever one was left. So if you start with an ACE inhibitor, then you added in uh, a calcium channel blocker. And then your third thing is you'd add in your uh, thiazide-like diuretic. So a typical example for a patient would be something like ramipril, amlodipine, and then indapamide. That would be a UK nice uh, guidance type of thing. Uh, for European and overseas listeners, there's, there's a, a much more of a trend to using multiple therapies up front. And I think all round we're recognizing in the cardiovascular world that giving multiple therapies early seems to be better and more effective. So, so they would start two drugs at once, in, ideally in one formulation. So you'd, you'd start off with a combined ACE and um, calcium channel blocker uh, or an ARB and a calcium channel blocker. And one of the things which was, would be really important is if in the lead into this station, the patient is already taking triple therapy. They might already be taking those three medications and that would be classed as resistant hypertension as we discussed earlier. So these patients, when they are referred to a clinic, for example, your um, specialist hypertension um, clinic, Angus, what are the, apart from the investigations and things we've discussed, what are the um, sort of escalations in medical therapy that you usually you would do for these patients okay so assuming we've done all the kind of the compliance stuff which is very frequently the big issue the next thing is what's the fourth line treatment so if there's if you if you've done everything you can elsewhere what's the fourth line treatment and there's now good evidence that spironolactone or a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist is is the best fourth line treatment and that came from the the pathways group of studies so we'd add in spironolactone 25 milligrams um, would be the next thing. And then it's pretty much equal what you do after that. So beta blockers are an option, particularly if they've got a tachycardia or an alpha blocker uh, like doxazazine. Um, there's a bit of scope for using a loop diuretic because that might have some um, beneficial extra effect uh, because it works in a different part of the, um, uh, of the renal pathway in terms of getting fluid loss. So if they had particularly some peripheral edema, that might be useful. But spironolactone is our fourth line treatment. Everything after that has, you know, the, the law of diminishing returns. You're getting less benefit and they're more likely actually not to take any of their tablets. So we're very cautious about, you know, adding fifth line treatment. Um, and there's a lot of debate about whether a device or kind of surgical intervention uh, has a role to play uh, after the spironolactone. Um, and so that's things like renal denovation and there's other things as well. But those are still yet to really be proven and they go up and down depending on the latest trial results. And I guess the other thing just to add in would be with the with the secondary causes, obviously, you're just going to want to treat um, treat the differential diagnosis or treat the cause directly. That may be surgery if it's something like uh, um, uh, pheochromocytoma or um, treating the acromegaly or Cushing's with um, appropriate changes to their medical therapy or, for example, something like sleep apnea. Overnight CPAP would be the intervention of choice. So. Although, yes, we want to treat their hypertension, we also want to treat the cause directly. So just really important to consider what your preferred diagnosis is and then target your treatment to that. I think more or less we've covered a lot of, first of all, the questions you need to ask in your history of these patients, a focused examination, and then we've spent a good long time talking about the range of differential diagnoses, the investigations you need to perform for each of these, and then a discussion about um, treating acute emergency hypertension or malignant hypertension, and then those who have severe hypertension who are presenting without evidence of target organ damage. So next up on the menu, I will be quizzing Dr. Angus Nightingale on Inspector Montalbano. We all know that consultants are experts in their field, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants, which isn't medicine? I'm laying down the gauntlet to each consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their choosing, with the caveat being it can't be to do with medicine. Now, last episode, we had Dr. Luke Bonetto, who hit a perfect score of 20 out of 20. So let's see if Dr. Nightingale can 
replicate the success. So just to go back, Angus, what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? So my specialist subject is Inspector Moltan Barno, who is an amazing Italian detective in Sicily. He inspires me because he solves crimes fantastically and he manages to spend his lunch times having amazing food and a glass of wine, a sneaky cigarette on the quay uh, after work or even uh, during work quite often. And he just cheers me up when I sit there thinking that's the kind of life I'd really like to be living. <laughs> Perfect. And I've got to say, this is probably one of the I was going to say it's probably the most one of the most extensive um, <laughs> quiz the consultants, which uh, which is sort of more niche. So it was really interesting. This is something which wasn't um, familiar to me at all. It was something completely new. So we may well have a few sort of VAR retrospective video assistant referees if if in fact some of the questions are are not accurate. But I've tried my best to do as much research um, into his books as possible. And like you say. He does seem like a really inspirational guy. And I'm sure when you read it, you're just transported to the beautiful uh, Sicilian coasts where he's solving crimes under the under the heat and sun. And even better that he's a he's a real foodie. So there are 10 questions in total. This is how we play. There are 10 questions in total. You can answer immediately for two points. But if you're not sure, you can take four multiple choice options for one point. So 10 quick fire questions on Inspector Montalbano. Are you ready? Yes. Question number one. What is Inspector Montalbano's first name? Salvo. (laughs) Salvo is correct. And he's off the mark for two points. Question number two. Inspector Montalbano is the police commissioner in which fictional Sicilian town? Vigata. Vigata is correct for another two points. What was the name of the very first Montalbano novel. We, I don't. I don't know the answer. To, well, can I see? I, I. I can't tell you off the top of my head. So I need to see the uh, the four options. And yep, you can take the multiple choice options. So uh, I've blown it though. I'm not going to beat Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so is it A. The Snack Thief, B. August Heat, C. The Wings of the Sphinx, or is it D. The Shape of Water? I'm going to go The Shape of Water, but I really don't know the answer to this one. Well, it was The Shape of Water, and that is for one point. So question number four, it's actually about The Shape of Water. So (laughs) in The Shape of Water, Silvio Luparello dies of a heart attack whilst having sex with his nephew and lover, Giorgio. Luparello's wife tips Montalbano off to a detail which proves how the crime scene had been altered. What does she tell him? No, I, it's a while since I've read that one. I'm going to have to go for the multiple choice again. No, that's all right. I, like I said, I did think this was a particularly broad <laughs> specialist topic, so I think we can cut you a bit of slack on that one. So, I'm not um, really a competitive cardiologist. It's fine. <laughs> so, is it A... Luparello's wristwatch is on his opposite hand. Is it that his wedding ring is missing? Is it that he has his underwear on inside out? Or is it that the shoes he's wearing aren't his? I think it's the shoes. It's incorrect. It was Uh. actually, he's got his underwear on inside (laughs) out because he was, uh, I guess he was in the all together when when the body was found. But yeah, they dressed him and got it wrong, yeah. No matter. Question number five. A superintendent at the Gata police station, which character is well known for worshipping Inspector Montalbano, but he often gets everyone else's name wrong and falls noisily through the doorway of the inspector's office? Uh, it's Catarella. He is the, he's the funniest thing in the whole, in the whole thing. He's brilliant. And the, the, the translation from Italian into English is just brilliant if you read one of his books. And he comes out with these great kind of lines. And he, yeah, he, he does, he's the phone operator. And, uh, and then, uh, and he, you know, so you never quite know who's actually going to turn up. And uh, yeah, he's, he's brilliant. And then he turns out to be this amazing detective. And he, does, he sorts out all their computers in, in later times. Because you're led to think that he's a bit of a, you know, really doesn't know what's going on at all. And he turns out to be really quite good near the end. <laughs> He's a real character, very lovable. Yeah. yeah, and absolutely correct for two points. Question number six. In The Voice of the Violin, how does Montalbano initially discover the body of the murdered young woman? 
Um, I've read that relatively recently. Like I said, it was really I tricky. I can't, I can't remember that. So give me the four options then. Okay. So is it A, he notices the post of the property hasn't been collected for a few days? Is it B, he notices that the bins of the property have not been emptied? Is it C, he notices the washing has been drying outside on the line for a few days? Or is it D, he notices a note left on the car outside the house has not been removed after it's been crashed into? Hmm, I don't think I know this one either. I'm going for D, the last one, the note on the car. And it's correct for one point. So yeah, I, well, this is from my provisional research that Montalbano was in the car with someone else who swerved to avoid, to avoid it. an animal in the road. Well, swerved to avoid an animal in the road, crashed into the car, left a note. Left a note then, to say it and then, yeah. And then he notices that the nothing, no, nothing's been done about the car. So he enters the property and finds the body of the murdered woman. They do have some great ways of finding their bodies and things. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's one of the kind of quite entertaining things in trying to work out the mind <laughs> of the writer here, how he comes up with all these ideas. Well, just, just wait until you get to question eight. Excellent. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it, Sam. Um, what is the name of Montalbano's longtime lover who tolerates his working hours and dedication to the job? Livia. It is Livia. Yeah, so I, I, I keep talking to my wife occasionally about Livia and think, you know, she puts up with an awful lot. And they, they have this long distance relationship where she lives uh, uh, somewhere up north and he and uh, and he they, it's a it's a funny world isn't it I haven't quite understood Italians I've decided <laughs> they're, uh, they're slightly loose 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 way of living is is interesting loose in a kind of relationship sense yeah okay question number eight in the terracotta dog where does Montalbano find the bodies of the two young lovers guarded by the terracotta dog no, I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay, so is it A, inside a secret room in a cave? B, inside a trunk in the police station? I'm sure it's A, but is carry it? on. <laughs> it is A, I'll let you have that. I'll let you have that. I remember yeah. that, yeah, because they, they found this kind of, uh, this sort of old kind of thing. It was all related to the wartime as well and uh, what happened in the Second World War, I think, and uh, a, a kind of a, an American ship that had been parked there and, uh, yeah, and got bombed. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. And yeah, you get the whole mafia story as well in it all as well. Do you think Sicily, where the mafia, they don't come in that much, but a little bit. Yeah, honestly, like I said, this is a, it's a really diverse <laughs> set of stories. And actually, Everybody should read these just for a bit of entertainment, if nothing else. Yeah, I'm definitely going to buy uh, buy The Shape of Water and start right from the beginning. It's really well, it made me, so we went on holiday to Italy a couple of years ago and uh, and I decided I was going to buy some, buy some octopus uh, based upon reading what the, some of this while we were in Italy. And, and I spent days preparing this octopus dish, but everyone else on our thing absolutely hated it. And I was thinking, this is just brilliant. This is Italian. <laughs> and then I had the best octopus pizza with baby octopuses, which I probably shouldn't admit to, but anyway. <laughs> okay, question number nine. In The Wings of the Sphinx, what do the wings in the title refer to? This is uh, the wings are of a butterfly. Isn't it a butterfly moth or something like that, I think, that she had yeah. tattooed on? Yeah, absolutely correct. It's, it was a sphinx butterfly tattoo on the body of um, one of the victims. Absolutely correct. For two points. And lastly, question number 10. In The Snack Thief, who was the thief? The thief was the little boy, I think it was Francoise, who was, they almost ended up adopting him as their son. He was the the son of uh, of this sort of beautiful cleaner, I think, who'd got murdered and, and they ended up finding, he, he was stealing food from, it's outside a church or something like that, I think. Yeah, absolutely right. I've just got a Tunisian boy on there. Yeah. But I think, I'm pretty sure all the details fill in the blanks there, which gives you a final score of 15 out of 20. And considering the breadth and depth of this, uh, this, this catalogue of books, I really think that is a respectable score. It's a really, really broad uh, subject, which you've done really well on. Good. Well, thanks, Sam. That's really, uh, I really enjoyed that anyway. <laughs> Good. And um, so, guys, I hope that covers, first of all, how you should approach a patient presenting with hypertension in paces that you might be asked to cover either in a station two or in a station five. And um, we have been delighted to be joined by Dr. Angus Nightingale, consultant cardiologist at the Bristol Heart Institute, to give us all the expert insight we need when approaching a patient with hypertension. So Angus, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Thanks very much, Sam. It's been a real pleasure to be uh, be involved. Good luck. Guys, that brings us near enough to the end of the show. And last but not least, if you really like the podcast, please like, comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, wherever you get them. You can also get in touch through all the social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Prepaces Podcast. And we are just about out of time. So thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. Next up on the menu is Quiz the Consultant, where I will be grilling Dr. Angus Nightingale on Inspector Malta on Inspector Montalbano. (laughs) Ten quick fire questions on Inspector (laughs) Montalbano. You're doing this well, aren't you? Yeah. It's Inspector Montalbano. Yeah. (laughs) I might actually go for that. Go for the Italian. Yeah.